This is Audio Gyan and I am your host Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. No country in the world apart from India has 22 official languages. Sir George Grayson's Linguistic Survey of India in 1903 to 1923 material of which was collected in the last decade of the 19th century had identified 179 languages and 544 dialects in 1921 census reports showed 188 languages and 49 dialects the 1961 census reports mentioned a total of 1652 mother tongues but the data of 1971 showed only 108 mother tongues which meant Almost 1544 mother tongues were removed. They were removed based on really ad hoc parameters. Only those will be included who have more than 10,000 speakers. Can't possibly imagine the impact. To know more about this, today we have Ganesh Devi with us on audio again. Ganesh sir is a thinker, cultural activist, institution builder, linguist, and a literary critic. and a former professor of english who undertook the project of surveying indian languages in 2010 if i have to speak about his body of work i guess it will be more than the episode with him you can find all the notes about and all the links about his work uh, in on ganeshdv.in and relevant links on in the show notes welcome ganesh sir i'm so honored to have you on the show uh, can't thank you enough for giving your time well i am pleased to be here thank you for inviting me on this episode Yeah, great. So I'm I'm like just a quick disclaimer. I'm not an expert, so pardon for any naive questions if asked. But it's an honest uh, attempt to document some of your thoughts. And uh, I've given the talk name as "Design of Languages" because Audiogan has been uh, talking about design to a certain extent. And I thought everything is designed. So so how about languages will also have its own semantics and own structure, and they are designed. Uh, and and we'll explore that in the conversation. So that's very fascinating. Thank you for thinking of something uh, out of the box. Thank you. So, sir, uh, I would like to start with the most uh, basic question: like, how do you define a language, and then how do you define a dialect? Is there any traditional definition for it, or has it evolved over time? There are two or three ways of defining language, and depending on which way you look at language, the definition will change. For instance, those who study languages as material. they define it as a system of signs but those who look at it as a human means invented for communication define it as a method of intersubjectivity that is connecting consciousness of a person with the consciousness of another person then there are people who look at language as a body and uh, as a corpus and they define it as a corpus which has some embedded rules of behavior norms of behavior which we normally call grammar so the grammarians define language as a thing with a grammar linguists structural linguists uh, look at language as a system of signs and these are arbitrarily 
made created science, they say. And those who are interested in the study of consciousness, the phenomenology, they look at language as a system of, as a carrier of significance. Not They do not think about which sign, but what is the significance? What is the meaning? What is the core of what you say? Not how you say it. Not if you follow grammar or not. So these are three different approaches to defining language. And therefore, language does not have a single or a simple definition. Then, if you are actively engaged in the field of environmental studies, and if you think of humans as a part of a larger chain of beings, both animal beings and non-animal plant beings, uh, then the definition of language uh, is uh, given as a higher stage of evolution. Mm. It is believed that other animals also will get into the language stage when they evolve sufficiently and their brain structures get uh, as complicated, as complex as the human brain is. The human brain works with the help of 85 billion uh, uh, neurons. neurons. Uh, but uh, the brain of an ant uh, does not have similar kind of complexity. However, uh, ants have rudimentary form of language. And that is why when you try to stop an ant in its way, then it turns around. And when the obstacle is removed, it still manages to go back to its original path and meet the other ants which uh, walk in a queue or some kind of formation. That formation is ordered by one of the ants. Let's call it the queen ant, like the honeybees. The queen mm. bee commands them and the bees also understand language, but not our kind of language. Ours is a uniquely designed product. Mm. It's so fascinating because when you say this, uh, is it that the queen commands something and then the ant exactly understands what it is and not doesn't decipher based on his or her experiences. And that's the difference which humans have. Uh, is that what you're pointing to? Yes. I mean, the various kinds of ants have a, a great understanding of photonic signals. When they see obstruction in the path of light, they understand the nature of the obstruction. Mm. So the ants, uh, they also use chemical signals, but that takes a greater energy for them because they have to produce those chemicals. And therefore, they do not use, uh, like uh, the case of dogs, for instance, when dogs lose their path, they go on smelling, sniffing, and then manage to return home. That's through sense of smell. That is a chemical uh, communication. But in the case of ants, while they are capable of chemical uh, communication, chemically induced communication, triggered communication, uh, they depend more on the use of light and shadows to find their path, to find their safe path. Uh, mm. But their language ends there. They are not able to communicate about yesterday and tomorrow, the past and the future. Humans have invented symbols which can actually signify the past and the future. Mm -hmm. And you also spoke about uh, the grammatical or the technical aspect of it being a bit arbitrary. Can you tell us more about it? And also, is this a pattern 
predominantly in the oriental philosophy versus the western is there any that access to the uh, understanding uh, well the grammarians look at the placement of these symbols in the structure of a sentence does the subject come first or the object come first mm. to market i go or i go to the market when then they decide which is proper which kind of a syntax which kind of arrangement of symbols will work within the given range of words available and the meaning that those words are supposed to reflect uh, to make it easy let me you know remind you of this uh, puzzle uh, which uh, we used to be asked as children about uh, uh, there is one tiger and you know uh, one uh, bakri and one the uh, hay stack and one boat to carry it to the other and children used to find out which is the safest way of getting there without getting the you know the ship being killed without the grass being it consumed and the tiger not being killed and so the grammarians look at the available word stock and their maneuvering ability within the entire outer framework of those meaning collective stock of meaning of those words and within that they decide which is the which set of rules would work for this set of words in such a way that these words serve the maximum utility for the users of those words that was the that is the creation of grammar and uh, i am quite amazed that the idea that a language has a grammar every language has its own grammar there is no universal grammar though there is a certain universal grammar which is the minimum common but every language has uh, its unique features and uh, people in ancient times uh, say about uh, 3000 years before our time uh, in greece uh, in uh, rome uh, rome had still not developed then but in the latin world world and uh, in our own uh, part of the world in pali prakrutes sanskrit thought of grammar as a useful way of teaching children the maximum utilization of words in the minimum space and mm. that is the idea of grammar is not for giving marks in the matric examination <laughs> that is a very that's a very uh, i mean the worst form of learning or understanding grammar grammar is exactly like uh, what the uh, notation is for a singer i mean with seven notes in the hindustani classical music you can produce such a range of voice maneuvering mm. the the gymnastic of voice to be precise and if one learns those notes then it becomes easier to train your throat in producing those notes those tunes so grammar is not external to a language it is a good careful observation of a given language and its use its usage in the middle of people who use a language to uh, just as mathematics can be music to mathematicians grammar can be quite musical to linguists who study grammar i am not one of those because i never studied linguistics in a systematic way all of this whatever i little i know about languages is all picked up along the way uh, out of my observations and my work with different language groups so mm. i'm more closer to people who think of language 
as a tool of the consciousness, human consciousness, for connecting with the consciousness of other human beings, other animals in the human species. Sure. So, but when you say grammar, we also have something called as Praman Bhasha. I wanted to just poke around that. Uh, and like, who decides this grammar? Is it organically evolving? Are there bodies like these who, and, and probably right from the Greek period to few of the Rishi Munis, like how does it translate? And then like the next question is like, what is a Praman Bhasha? Because okay. I'm, I'm particularly curious. I had uh, heard one interesting podcast where they said the it's a political concept, Praman Bhasha. So I wanted to understand that bit as well. Yeah. Let's look at it this way. When a human child is born from the age of eight months, to the age of 18 months, a great transformation takes place in the brain of that child. Because uh, up to the age of three and a half or four, the brain of the child develops uh, very, very rapidly. And that is one reason why children need longer hours of sleep to heal the, you know, the, the flow of chemicals required for a child. The work that a child does inside its brain is much more than an IIT graduate does inside the IIT lab or classroom. It's very laborious process. Now, in those 10 to 12 months, the child learns that its body and the body of its mother are separate. They are not one and the same. Up to the age of eight months, the child thinks that the mother's body is extension of its body. Now, this separation enables the child to think of I and non-I, self and non-self, me and the rest of the world, uh, the ego and the non-ego. Now, this is bound to happen to every human child. Mm. Actually, the reason why children are not supposed to see a mirror before the ninth month is this, that, you know, the notion of the self, Sigmund Freud would have called the narcissistic, uh, you know, arena structure would be hugely disturbed if a child is shown its image in the mirror because the image is seen by the child as another. From the age of 8th month to the 18th month, the child learns to look at its image in the mirror as another person and learns to look at itself through the eyes of the image. Wow. This is fascinating. A lot of research is done on this. Now, why I mentioned this is before paper arrived in the world, before books were produced, before humans made uh, uh, cities, they still had this ability because humans have been using language for the last 70,000 years. And so you, I, I imagine that humans would be having this ability to distinguish between the self and the other for over the last uh, 60, 65,000 years. Mm. Now, that being the case, in ancient history, that is, I'm going back to, let's say, 45,000 years before our time, when the huge migrations took place from Africa to uh, the rest of the world, and this out of Africa, what uh, anthropologists call the modern man, out of Africa, this modern man decided to settle in different places. But the migrations did not stop well until yesterday. They're still continuing. Yeah. And so every time a new entity comes in an already settled area, the settled people start looking at this new one as another, as an other, an outsider. 
one of the markers of identity of the other are its i mean that person's language wow when uh, from gujarat i go to bombay and start speaking uh, marathi or hindi immediately they say oh gujarati uh, avyach or uh, from yorkshire people go to london immediately the person is marked out and uh, is uh, shown as a dialect user of a dialect mm. now this particular identification of the others making language as the identity is the basis of the general impression that some people use language differently than others the ones who are described as users of language differently are normally the outsiders those who are at their late like you know some terrible politicians say that if you eat biryani we know that's a threatening thing <laughs> so it is the same with language otherwise there is nothing like standard language anywhere in the world because every time we use speak a sentence or use a word every time its meaning is different we cannot use just as philosophers say that you cannot stand in the same river twice because lot of water that water has already got you were standing last minute similarly the meaning of every word keeps changing every microsecond uh, within the body of a given language and so there is there is uh, scientifically speaking no standard language but the standard is created sociologically not linguistically and this sociological idea of the self and the other is imposed on the use of language of people for instance in maharashtra if uh, you were let's say a non brahminical non upper class upper caste then your use of language would be objected to in the classroom by teachers mm. and there it is it is the caste and the class bias which is being articulated rather than a linguistic proper linguistic analysis as such that is uh, when i studied in leeds most of the british landladies used to refuse giving uh, rooms on the rain to asian students and they said no their food smells uh, strange but it was not the smell of the food it was really this sociological bias of somebody being from an inferior uh, society or inferior race or you know so uh, it is for the same reason that uh, if there is a smell of camphor kapur and suddenly we say oh namaste like we join our hands and we think is this is something sacred and so on mm. so it is the sociological bias wow that's so there is no there no language is standard no language is non standard all language is equally standard because all language does precisely the same work that is of communicating meaning words are a transport system they are conveyor belts and they carry certain payload they carry certain quantum of meaning sometimes even not using words can convey meaning yeah in para so i wanted that was the next question that like i have read about this four types of communication i mean we are digressing from languages to communication but it's it's somehow connected also we have these four right para pashyanti vaikhari and madhyama i have not said in the correct order but we have so like the earlier point which you mentioned that those who look languages from a syntax point of view or grammar point of view also consider this as a utility to communicate but those who look from a linguistic standpoint do they classify languages in these four categories 
Yeah, I'll answer that. Uh, you know, you mentioned this Parapashanti. Uh, Vaikhari and mm-hmm. Madhyam. Madhyama. That theory comes from a thinker of 7th century, I believe, called Anand Vardhana. Hmm. He has written a book called Dhanya Lok. That is, he is describing the cosmos of Dhani. Dhani ka Lok. The, hmm. the cosmos of sound. And his curiosity was how sound actually creates meaning. Hmm. His basic question was, does meaning pre-exist sound, which then sound carries it from X to Y spot, X to Y person? Or is it created in the act of caring, in the gesture of caring? And uh, his uh, questions came from an earlier thinker called Bhartrari, who existed 200 years before him. Let me mention Bhartrari first, and then I go to this uh, Parapashanti, because without that, we won't get the full sense of what it is all about. Bhartrari said that if there is a stream with flowing water, and you hold an object above the stream, there will be a reflection that you can see. But if you take the object away, you take the object off, will the reflection remain? The answer is no. So Bhartulu said, language is like that river, but you hold a concept above it, and you see the reflection of that concept, a concept such as you know, an idea. By concept, I mean an idea, such as, let's say, house is a concept. A shirt is a concept. Car is a concept. Apple, yeah. Apple is a, apple is the most standard concept in physics. <laughs> so, Bhartrari was saying that the concepts by themselves do not have any meaning. Language creates meaning temporarily as an illusion of meaning because the reflection is an illusion. So, mm. Bhartrari was proposing the theory of meaning as momentary illusion. Outside that river stream, those concepts like whatever app you hold that apple, the apple has no meaning as such. So is the meaning in the apple or in the river? That was the next question. And Bertrolli said, it is neither in the concept nor in the language, but meaning suddenly bursts out in the mind of the listener. And he called it sphota. This theory is sphota. Now, in response to that sudden outburst of meaning, when there's a conjecture of concept and the available language uh, facility, in response to that, Anandwardhana said that that theory of Bhartrari is wrong. I don't agree with it. Hmm. The real theory is, I mean, this is what Anandwardhana was proposing, that there is meaning, but it is nascent. We cannot have access to it. It is there. It is like Parmeshwar. It hmm. is para. It is beyond our cognition. But it certainly is there. He has no proof for that. He has no evidence for that. But he has an argument. And the argument is that because there is para, you can actually see inside your mind the form of a word. That you, you know, Pashyanti is the one which is seen. So the mm. form of the word is seen in your mind. I mean, now as I am speaking to you, there is a sentence or words in your mind. You are about to speak. But inside your mind you can see. And Vaikari is when that form of the meaning seen inside your word is given the company of sound, it becomes Vaikari. And then what is born is tokens in the cosmos of Dhani, in Dhani Loka, Dhanya Loka. They become words for us. So it is a, a debate between two philosophers, both of whom 
are taking recourse to abstractions beyond the ordinary sphere of language and its users. And uh, it is because Bhartrari was fighting a battle with Buddhism and Anandvardhana was fighting a battle with Bhartrari's linguistic theory called uh, Vaisesika. Okay. okay. Wow, that's amazing to hear. And I'm, I would like to just continue on those front, but that's, I understand that's more on the spiritual front as well. Uh, so, so just coming back to the practical world uh, and the real world, I have like a few more questions. Uh, Before we jump next, uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to the show. In your TEDx talk, uh, you mentioned about language doesn't die. It can only be killed. So I wanted you to just explain with some one or two examples, uh, which will help us understand this better. See, every word takes birth after a lot of labor of the mind by people who use a given language. I mean, the words don't drop upon us, drop down upon us like uh, rains come. Even for the rains to uh, get generated, there's a lot of work that nature has to do. Humans uh, labor inside their minds to think of precise description of things because every word is a naming game. It is like giving name to something. Or as Shakespeare said, you know, to give local habitation to an airy nothing. Uh, (laughs) So we name things like mountain, river, hill, book, horse, etc., etc. are so sturdy that these tokens are, these signs are accepted by everybody in the community. There is a tacit understanding that the word joy means happiness. And uh, unless it is used with greatest irony, oh, what, you know, what terrible thing, you know, some joy to see. Mm. But uh, because of so much labor, has, because so much labor has gone into it, because the entire community has accepted it, when some individuals stop using certain words, other individuals still continue to use those words. Mm. And in that sense, language cannot die so long as that community is alive. But for a variety of reasons, if the community has to do, is forced to make language migration for the, let's say for livelihood, just as today coastal people have moved inland and therefore they have moved out of their languages. The Kharwa language spoken by the you know people in southern Gujarat on the coastal area no longer find Kharwa people. And about 30 years back, there were 50 lakh speakers. Today, there are hardly 500 left. So because the livelihood practice of this community is disturbed, their language will die. So languages do not die. Languages mm-hmm. by themselves do not die. But by disturbing the people who speak a given language, a language can be killed systematically. Uh, there have been systematic attempts at killing languages in history all along. To give you a, a slightly different example, the, in Karnataka, where I am just now, the women were expect in certain area were expected to speak Tulu, and men were expected to speak Kannada. So naturally, the Tulu language slowly started going down, and Kannada developed 
because men had more money more power they were in a position of domination dominant position so languages can be killed they do not die by themselves there is and by by the way language is not like an animal it's not like a tiger or an elephant which will take birth grow and then die language is not an organic system i mean it's not a life system it is a system of signs created and uh, therefore it does not have this it does not have to go through this cycle of birth growth and death that's a wrong idea we impose on language because we use a metaphor for language called the mother we think is mother tongue language in, in for india we often use the feminine uh, pronoun for language she marathi sangli hai gujarati sari che hindi achhi hai so language has no gender language is not a person language is a system of science that's all about it but but you also mention about the carrying capacity of a language also so what does that mean because uh, words you know, words are born uh, within a certain context geographical cultural social political context hmm. technological context now if these words are made to uh, serve purposes beyond their capacity then those words start developing aberrations they undergo changes this english language was uh, you know it took birth around let's say the uh, 10th or 11th century uh, for the first two centuries it was barely surviving because french was the national language of england at that time it was being taught in schools because the french ruled england and so from roughly from the 15th century english starts becoming from being a seed a plant and a sapling and then mighty writers came along the spencer shakespeare milton chaucer they made it a very sturdy language the bible was translated into english and so it acquired a theological dimension also scientists contributed a lot to making english a language of knowledge now this language going out to let's say papua new guinea uh, or uh, to congo or to ghana the context there are very different the plants are different the animals are different the birds are different so uh, that language starts failing but in the process it acquires new features hmm. in uh, if uh, english is used in india to describe the how parrots speak then persons say yeah parrot is parroting what parrots say things like that mm-hmm. now because there are mythical parakeets in the greek mythology the britain british people have not seen them there they exist in these are divine parrots parrots in heaven but the british did not see the english language is not sufficiently competent to describe the complete behavior of uh, you know or the color more punky sari the british won't be able to say what is now will they say peacock color i mean they'll say some indigo blue deep blue light blue high blue thick blue etc etc when these new realities confront a language beyond its capacity to describe that reality that language starts undergoing changes in such a way that after a while after 100 or 200 300 years the same language used in another area becomes mutually unintelligible to people who speak its original language and that is why today 
what an Irishman says in English is not intelligible to what a New Zealander says in English. Mm. They have to make great effort for understanding. You know, if I go to see a Hindi movie, I can shut my eyes and listen to the movie and understand it. When I go to see a German movie, a French movie or English movie, I have to keep my eyes, I have to listen with my eyes also. Mm-hmm. Because I make a sense of the gestures, the movements, the facial expressions and so on. And then derive complete meaning. So that is, the, that is what happens to an Irish person listening to a New Zealander. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you tune into different uh, TV channels, let's say from NDTV to Al Jazeera to BBC and CNN, you'll see that what the CNN fellow is speaking is not so easily intelligible to what the Al Jazeera person is saying. Mm-hmm. So, so great shades, varieties develop and yeah. then language falls apart. That's what I was saying. Yeah, and, and not understanding or not intelligible is not at a very superficial level of the accent or the dialect, but it's much more deeper than that with the actual meaning also because the contexts are different. Is that the correct? Context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you when some uh, lady from Maharashtra says, uh, "This is my 16th Monday fast," mm. <laughs> uh, I think Sola Somvar, the person from Africa or US, will not understand what that lady is saying. Correct. All the baggage that the Sola Somvars. I am going to offer prayers to uh, the real, the truth, the true Narayan, Satya Narayan Puja. They will not understand. What is mm. so? I mean, I'm not trying to ridicule these situations because when people speak like this, they're real people speaking real language, but because that language has run out of its ability to carry further payload of meaning, mm. that starts failing. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll deep dive into this payload bit, but uh, one more example which I've I've heard in one other podcast was um, in India maybe the concept of having personal space is not that prevalent or was not that previously. And and with the new generation, it doesn't sound exactly the way you say, give me my space. right? So, so same example. Now it's, they're trying to translate, but there's the space as a concept or the personal freedom, not freedom, but yeah, freedom space is interchangeably used, but it's still not very clear when you borrow these words uh, from other language. You're right. But let me add something interesting. Yeah, please. When I studied in England, in those days, we often traveled in trains and buses and heard nobody say anything at all to anybody else. It was a social norm not to speak in trains, but just to be reading your day's newspaper Mm. or doing nothing at all. In India, if you travel in a train, then it's difficult to stop people from talking. Things have changed now. Now they are more glued to the you know their mobile phone and WhatsApp. But there was a time when they used to talk, talk and talk. And it is because India has many languages. And even when you are in a public space, you can switch over to a language not known to the public and known only to yourself and communicate. But in England, that facility did not exist because everybody understood English language. And so there was no personal space in public places in uh, a monolingual country. But in a multilingual country, there are many hidden private spaces for everybody. And uh, so the idea of space 
personal space in public arena is quite different that we have and that they have and mm-hmm. is the same in the private uh, arena in fact i think in the in the private arena we also have churchy bhasha searchy bhasha like you you add certain conjunctions or syllables uh, after every word it's, it's it makes it, it it codifies it but it's quite interesting uh, so, so in a language which uh, in people who are monolingual by and large they uh, develop what uh, we call slang mm. or different registers and uh, slang is not only gali galoch slang is not dirty language slang is an attempt to uh, invent private space for a certain age group certain professional group and so on so we find that uh, children who go to a certain english medium school even in india they have their code words because they want those words not to be understood by the teachers so humans humans have been very inventive with languages and they will remain inventive for with languages for another maybe 2 to 300 years after that humans are going to move out of the language phase and move on to another system of science since you mentioned about the carrying capacity i've also read about there are languages who thrive because they are accommodative for example hindi like hindi was never like a hindi is a culmination of uh, of the bhojpuri and like lot of other languages right so so what is that then because it sounds very counterintuitive that if languages thrive i mean how how can they diminish if they are accommodative see it's a brilliant question thank you for asking it and what i will say might unsettle many people but uh, i i am going to say it yeah please hoping for compassion from my listeners and it is uh, hindi is more an arrangement than a language let me explain what i am saying sure. during the 19th century at calcutta the british set up a printing press for the first time and for the first time they appointed this uh, the printing press was at st fort williams it was supposed to produce books for english young people who came to india to govern and these were normally in their mid 20s they landed in india so they had to be given primers in different indian languages to teach them languages of the people they would be ruling so among the language among the primers produced one was in bangla another in marathi third in tamil one was in hindi now till then this is the first decade of the 19th century 220 years before our time till then no speaker of what we call hindi today would have identify herself or himself as hindi speaker you mentioned that there was audi there was bhojpuri there was you no know, khadi boli khadi boli was probably the more dominant form of hindi mm. and that khadi boli had a good deal of alienation from the persian language that was his peculiarity so it was anti persian in its bias and because persian was the national language throughout the 17th century and the 18th century in this country it was spoken by everybody our shivaji maharaj used to speak persian very fluently he could write letters in persian and uh, so hindi this book was published by a man the officer was called lalluji lal he was a learned man he was appointed by the british and lalluji produced a book called hindi so what was in the book came to be known as hindi hmm. this name is mentioned once prior to this by 
Albaruni, a traveler, and he called it Hindavi. Hindavi. Hmm. But by hmm. which he meant it is a set of languages spoken in India, though he used that term. Hmm. Now, today, in our census, every 10 years it is carried out. And uh, I have been watching the census from 1961. And I, I see how the population of Hindi shown in the census as growing. Uh, in 1961, it was shown as 34% of the entire Indian population. At that time, the population was 53 crores. So this 36%. Then the 34%. Then it was shown as 36. After 10 years, 38, 39, 41. Now 43%. And total speakers of Hindi are shown as 52 crores and some lakhs. But uh, the uh, interesting part of this is it has listed within Hindi 65 other languages as Hindi. Bhojpuri is listed within Hindi and Bhojpuri speakers, uh, who people who claim Bhojpuri as their mother tongue, their number is 5 crore, 5 lakh in 2011 census. But Bhojpuri is uh, in, uh, pushed into it. Rajasthan is also included. Kumaunia of Uttarakhand is included. Uh, our uh, Paura language from Maharashtra is included in Hindi. While Marathi speakers count Paura as part of Marathi. Hindi speakers count power as, so it is an arrangement. Hindi has survived as an arrangement and it's a beautiful arrangement. That arrangement accommodates many languages and those languages which have no reservation in belonging to the description, those languages which do not feel hurt by the description Hindi are all included in the arrangement called Hindi. Now, you know, to your question, Hindi is the fastest growing language because it is a new language arrangement and uh, it, is, it is a fascinating experiment. I'm sure what I say might hurt some people because people's sentiments are attached to a language as it's their mother tongue. But I don't mean to offend anybody. To some extent, Marathi is also a kind of an arrangement, though Marathi has a, a certain former linguistic basis as a system of grammar. Uh, Hindi may kuch bhi bola to chalta hai, kyunki uski shuruat kahi bhi ho sakti hai, vakya ka ant. It's a beautiful arrangement. It is extremely humanitarian. It is accommodative. It, it does not look down upon people who use Hindi wrongly. Isliye, bilkul Persian biased Hindi se, Sanskritize Hindi tak aur Bhojpuri Hindi se leke hamara Andhra Pradesh ka jo Hindi tha in a, in a movie like Ankur for instance that Shabana Azmi spoke and she spoke it beautifully. It would be mutually unintelligible to the Kumauni speaker in Uttarakhand but Kumauni okay. is accepted as Hindi, the Dakhanis of uh, Andhra Pradesh is accepted as Hindi, Urdu of Aurangabad is accepted as Hindi. So it is, it is a wonderful arrangement. Once we are clear about it, then one's admiration for the real Hindi can be properly organized. Admiration for the arrangement can also be differently and properly organized. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Sir, uh, just to conclude one thing, what keeps you awake at night today? And I, I mean, this is pointing towards if anybody wants to get into this or understand language or get into survey or any, any like tip direction which uh, you would like to tell the future of India as a linguist. 
diversity is precious we must preserve that diversity because our respect for diversity reflects our respect for human beings and also for nature and we are not apart from nature we are a part of nature i go to bed and fall asleep the very next second it has been lifelong habit i never uh, when i wake up then i don't uh, try to go back to sleep i just you know approach the next day or whether it is the middle of the night or early morning whatever so there is one worry that i have and that is i am forgetting i have started forgetting more words per minute than i ever did before and my worry would not have been a worry because such a behavior called amnesia has a medical uh, treatment there is a therapy for that but my fear is compounded by the fact that i am not alone that practically every human animal every human being has started forgetting language and while people speak more they speak fewer words i mean to you think of the english language for instance english is spoken as mother tongue by nearly 180 crores all over the world or even a larger number but they speak far fewer words than uh, were spoken when english was the language of uh, let's say about uh, 20 crores or 10 crores is the same with hindi hindi is now spoken by a larger number of persons but they speak less hindi and uh, some years back i was talking to my adivasi friends and i was talking to them about the future and how their horizons of expectations must be lifted i said i said uh, i mean i was using their language but i i used the word kshitij ikshapla kshitij var unsavla pahije and then somehow i should ask them whether they knew what kshitij means and when i asked them they said we don't know what the word means the word kshitij exists in gujarati it exists in marathi it exists in sanskrit hindi and therefore those adivasi languages uh, uh, which were part of my discourse at that day were bound to have a word like that but if humans forget a word like kshitij then uh, languages are endangered and when humans forget a word like truth and they think that another word called post truth has identical meaning then languages are endangered <laughs> beautiful beautiful on that note we'll conclude this thanks a lot sir i can't thank you enough this is like i'm i'm actually short of words <laughs> cool uh thanks a lot thanks for your wonderful questions uh, do let me have this you know clip of whatever you call it yes. whenever you want to send it out thank you okay and that's it from today's gyan session for show notes and more gyan visit audiogyan.com If you like this podcast please don't forget to check our other interesting podcast on IVM network you can listen to us on IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or any of your favorite podcasting apps to stay tuned follow us on twitter and instagram at ivm podcast and if you wish to connect with me i am at audiogan moments on instagram until then take care It's been a great week on the IVM Podcast Network. 
On this round is on me. Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish thing, Anish welcomes ultra marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. On Cock and Bull, Cyrus, Naveen, Akash, and Shreyas talk about the Korean band BTS serving in the military and its repercussions. On Think Fast, Varun and Suchita discuss Wing Greens and their latest acquisitions, and about the Indian sexual wellness market. And on Shuni One, Sheila Dutta is joined by Dinika Bhatia, CEO and founder of Nutty Gritties. They talk about coming from a business family and Dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt-free snacking. Once again, don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcasts.com. We have some exciting new merch out there for you. Also, do follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to. Appreciate them, rate them, and review them wherever you are listening to them. You can also check out all our other shows on YouTube.com/slash/IVMPodcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week: Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tails, Kotak Privy League Program, and HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks, guys. Without you, this would not be possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web three, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms, and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya, and on our show, Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IVM Podcast app and the website, or wherever you get your podcasts from.